Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. We've got new developments in that Georgia case involving Donald Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the election. Today, as Chris was talking about, the former Trump lawyer, Sidney Powell, this woman, asked the court to separate her case from the 19 other defendants in the trial. Uh, her lawyers claim that Sidney Powell, quote, has no substantive connection with any other defendant regarding the charges in the indictment, end quote, and therefore should be tried alone. Now, that is, to put it mildly, a difficult case to make. Powell. Seen here standing alongside Rudy Giuliani in front of a campaign sign for the co-defendant Donald Trump has many substantive connections to the other defendants. She attended a meeting with several of her co-defendants at the White House where they discussed ways to overturn the election. At that meeting, they considered making Sidney Powell a special counsel so that she could investigate the election. But now her lawyers say she doesn't really know any of those folks. And she's not alone in that, by the way. Another co-defendant in the Georgia case, this man, Kenneth Cheesebro, has also filed a motion to sever his case from the others. Mr. Cheesebro would also like the court to release the names of 30 unindicted co-conspirators in the indictment. There are 30 of them who were not named. Those motions come as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis told the court that she wants all 19 defendants in this case tried together. No exceptions. Cheesebro and Powell have all invoked Georgia's Speedy Trial Act, trying to get their cases to court before all the other defendants in the case. Another co-defendant, Trump lawyer John Eastman, says he intends to do the same. Now, we don't know who the courts will side with on that particular question. But if those defendants think they're going to have an easier time on their own, they may want to rethink their strategy. Just last night, listen to this one. John Eastman, also a co-defendant, gave an interview to Fox News where he issued this challenge. On the RICO side of the Fulton County case, um, that, that would require findings of bad faith. That would have to be you all basically agreeing implicitly, explicitly, that you all knew that this was all phony. And to that, you say? Well, uh, they've got all the evidence. They've got all my emails. My phone was seized over a year ago, so they've got all that stuff as well. And I challenge them to find a single email or communication that supports that uh, implausible theory. Challenge accepted. John Eastman wants to see an email where he admits that this is all that this isn't all above board. OK, how about this one? It's it's in the January 6th indictment sent by John Eastman to then Vice President Mike Pence's chief counsel, in which he says, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation of the Electoral Count Act and adjourn for 10 days to delay the uh, to allow the legislatures to finish their investigations, as well as to allow a full forensic audit of the massive amount of illegal activity that has occurred here. Okay. Okay. How about this one where he tells Rudy Giuliani, I've decided that I should be put on the pardon list if that's still in the works, end quote. Okay. 
Joining us now are people who know more about this than I do and who might chuckle less about it. I don't know. Jim Messina is a former campaign manager for Barack Obama and Bar- uh, for Barack Obama's 2012 reelection campaign and a former White House deputy chief of staff and the CEO of the Messina Group. Also with us is Anthony Michael Christ, a professor of law and political science at Georgia State University. Welcome. Good evening to both of you. Um, Anthony, let's start with you. Because uh, I'm some of the legal stuff makes some sense and some of it makes no sense at all. Uh, Donald Trump tried this the other day, the day he was uh, he, he turned himself in. He came out, he spoke briefly to reporters and he said, I don't even know most of these people I'm charged with. He may not know a couple of them based on the uh, the, the, the the breadth of this, uh, this set of charges. Sidney Powell was on the ground. She was doing things there. She was hanging around election offices. She was also trying to become a special counsel. She was behind a lot of these plans. Tell me uh, on the on the face of it, the merits of their arguments. Well, I think this is exactly why Fonnie Willis has used the Georgia Rico statute, which is essentially a very broad conspiracy statute, unlike the federal statute, which is much narrower, um, rather than a traditional conspiracy crime or a conspiracy to commit election fraud. Because under a traditional conspiracy to commit election fraud charge, you would have to have a situation where two people essentially get together, agree to do something unlawful, and then one person in that group does something concrete in furtherance of that that crime or that conspiracy. Here, what we have is a much more difficult scenario where you have a number of different moving parts and everybody knows that they're part of some kind of machine that is up to no good, right? They have an unlawful enterprise or an unlawful goal, but they don't really know how they're all working together. And so this idea that they can say, well, I don't know all these defendants or I really didn't have any concrete agreements with them really doesn't fly because that's that's exactly um, you know why Fonnie Willis is charging these crimes in the way that she is. Jim Messina, uh, how do you think this is all all playing out? Uh, It's it's less coordinated than the whole case that Fonnie Willis is making. They all seem to be doing their own thing right now, which leads me to believe that at some point they're not all lined up behind Donald Trump. No, Al, you're exactly right. At some point, they're all going to start to make deals and say things like Eastman said last night uh, on Fox. I love how you nailed him on it. You know, this is the kind of thing they're all going to start to do. And this is a problem when you have 30, shall we say, some uh, unsavory characters uh, trying to cut deals and trying to all defend themselves. And now they all want to go to individual trials, which, if you're the Trump campaign, uh, is just an absolute nightmare. And uh, and we would be very, very bad for them as this plays out on national TV every single night. Anthony, there's some speculation, and I don't I don't understand this very well, but that the reason that these uh, attorneys for uh, a few of these characters want their cases to go first and separately is that they can then invoke attorney client privilege to not say things about their discussions with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump can later use uh, that information. What do you what do you know about this? Well, I think what we're seeing from the, the individuals who have invoked their speedy trial rights is is two things. The, the first um, being the, the counsel uh, issue or the the, um, the attorney-client privilege issue, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I think the first thing is, is that some of them, particularly, particularly Kenneth Chesborough, has the opportunity or wants to make the opportunity uh, of standing alone to say, I was just engaging in legal theory and I wasn't engaged in the actual criminal conduct that other people were potentially or allegedly doing in Georgia, um, just leave me alone. I, I was just the guy who was thinking up legal theories like law professors do. 
Um, so I think that's part of the strategy. The other thing, though, of course, is that um, you know attorney-client privilege is not completely absolute, right? So if a judge finds that there is a, a crime that was involved in a conversation between an attorney and their client, there is the crime fraud exception, which would allow some of that evidence potentially to come in, right? We already have an example of that from federal court where a federal judge found that there was some criminal activity, at least a, a more likely than not, to have occurred between John Eastman and Donald Trump and some of the, the individuals that John Eastman was working with in uh, some uh, some of the litigation that they had here in Georgia. So that can be pierced. And so, um, you know, I, I think that some of the some of the defendants may have thought that maybe Fonnie Willis wouldn't be quite prepared to have trials this fall. But I, but I think really a, a number of the folks are, are gaming out the system to essentially say, I, I really wasn't engaged in, in this really deeply criminal stuff. I, I kind of have the, the fewest fingerprints on, on Georgia of everybody. I, I think it's unpersuasive. I think that'll be a hard thing for them to, to uh, create a defense around, but I suspect that's largely their strategy. So, Jim, of the four indictments, two of them, Georgia and, and Jack Smith's January 6th, have to do with fraud or D- Donald Trump's claims of fraud in the election. Uh, they are detailed. They are going to play out sometime over the course of the next several months or a year. But take a look at this poll uh, conducted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in which the question was asked, do you believe there was widespread fraud during the 2020 presidential elections or not? Now, just to be clear with everybody, these are Republican primary voters. 61% say yes, 30% say no, 8.5% are undecided. I'm puzzled as to how you're undecided two and a half years into this thing. But Jim, this is what's going on. Donald Trump looks at those numbers, and if you believe there was fraud in the in the 2020 election, you're more likely than not to be a Trump supporter in the next election. His base isn't dwindling on that front. No, it's not. And this, Ellie, is the lasting damage he's doing to American democracy because he's out there telling an entire wing of one of the two major parties that up is down and that black is white. And now they're not going to believe the next thing they hear. And it's really a huge problem. And it's a huge problem for people running against him in the primary because the moment you say, hey, the election wasn't stolen, or even this guy is going to be prosecuted on 91 felony counts, should he really be our nominee, you're going up against 60, 70% of the the party who believes that that's not true and believes that Donald Trump was right. I saw an interesting statistic as well that among religious voters, more people believe that Donald Trump is honest than religious leaders. Now, you and I can spend (laughs) a lot of time on National TV Alley about whether that's true or not. But it is part of the problem that all these folks running against Donald Trump in the primary are going to have to deal with, because right now he is the arbiter of truth, as horrifying as it seems to you and me. Speaking about the truth, um, uh, Anthony, Mark Meadows trying to get his case uh, taken to federal court, uh, probably thinks he's got a better chance and a better jury pool there. But his his principal point, and he's not really fully making making it, but there's been a trial before a trial. But you can see what he'd do if he got to federal court. His argument is that I was the chief of staff to the president. In fact, the words he used is I was trying to land the plane. This vote counting business was incidental to the fact that I was actually just trying to get the business done of the president of the United States. But there's a phone call in which he's on recorded that the court has heard where he's talking to Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state. And while he's not using Trumpian language in terms of being threatening and mob bossy, he is implying, is there something we can do together to work this all out? Because we need the votes that we need. 
Yeah, so the, I, I actually had the opportunity to go to federal court on Monday and, and uh, watch that hearing. And Mark Meadows did his very best to, I think, be an affable witness and to present uh, evidence to suggest that he was just doing his job. And, and really, the activities that he was engaged in here in Georgia were kind of run-of-the-mill activities for a chief of staff. But it was somewhat unpersuasive, or I should say even largely unpersuasive, because while there might have been some incidents um, right where his his conduct might have been fairly benign, uh, the, the DA's office proffered evidence to show that he was coordinating um, with campaign staff and doing things that um, were not furthering a federal interest. In particular, uh, there was a, an effort by uh, Trump allies to get a signature audit on mail ballots here in Fulton County. And Mark Meadows asked a, a member of the Secretary of State's office if uh, he could somehow coordinate campaign funds to come to Georgia to assist that. Um, he made a lot of efforts to coordinate with campaign uh, workers and uh, with state officials to uh, right, to, to uh, get the phone call connected between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger. There was a lot that he was doing at the entire, you know, throughout the entirety of everything that Mark Meadows did here in Georgia. One thing stuck out in that hearing, which was he had no good answer for why, when he was chief of staff, he didn't read in anyone from the White House Counsel's Office, anyone from the Department of Justice, yep. or anyone from the Department of Homeland Security, because he was really doing campaign work. And that's that's not permitted under federal law, and it really cuts against his removal motion. And he was the chief of staff, not someone's assistant. He could have tapped any one of those people, the White House counsel. He could have tapped anybody and said, hey, so this, you got a view on this, or should I be going to this meeting, or should I be making that phone call? Guys, thanks very much. A lot to unpack, and we appreciate your expertise. Anthony Michael Christ and Jim Messina, we appreciate your time tonight. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back in just a moment. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Right, kids in Texas are back to school this week. However, for the almost 200,000 public school students in Houston, the largest school district by far in Texas, this year is on track to be very different. That's because this past June, the state of Texas took over the Houston public schools following what they called inadequate test scores. The state started by removing elected school board members and ushering in a new superintendent who in turn announced a, quote, new education system. In that system, discipline is prioritized over libraries and books. Over the summer, librarian jobs were eliminated in 28 schools across Houston. Some of the libraries have been repurposed, turned into so-called team centers. 
meant for disciplining students who misbehave in class. This change sparked outcry across the heavily Democratic city, where over 80 percent of the kids in schools are black and Hispanic. NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton is covering all of this on the ground in Houston, and she brings us this report. Lately, Houston mom Lauren Simmons struggles to recognize her own city. She came up through the very same school system that her third and 11th grader now attend. But this year, her daughter's school won't have a full library. It's been a real struggle for me because I should just be able to wake up, drive my kids five minutes down the street, and they'd be at schools that are filled with great educators that have all of the fancy, you know, programs and after-school programs, and that's just not our reality. What did the library mean to you when you were a kid coming up in the same system? The library was everything. I'm the kid that's checking out 10 books, and I'm checking out 10 more books, and I'm at home under the cover reading books. Over the summer, dozens of Houston schools replaced their libraries with team centers, where students will do work or go when they misbehave. Many librarians were laid off or reassigned to new jobs. The changes overwhelmingly impacted Black and Latino neighborhoods. So Lauren and other moms spent their summer going to meetings and protests, demanding to be heard. I want you to look in my face and remember me because I'm your new best friend. That sign is right. Republicans have made parental rights a centerpiece of the GOP platform arguing that parents have the right to demand that books be removed from schools, that lessons on race and gender be restricted. But this spring, when the state of Texas took over the Houston Independent School District of almost 200,000 kids in a blue city in a red state, there was little outcry from those same parental rights activists. The state replaced their elected school board members. They pushed out the superintendent. So taking these principles to... And brought in former Dallas superintendent and and charter school founder Mike Miles. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner thinks the move is anti-democratic. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. It's a hostile takeover where the people are not accountable to the parents or the teachers of the local community and the students. They're appointed by the people at the state. Is Houston in conflict with its own state government? Well, Houston has been in conflict with its own state government for years. What's happening here with HISD cannot be viewed separate and apart from the greater picture. Okay, so let's not be fooled. For years, a number of Houston schools were failing. Parents pleaded for more resources as large numbers of students fell far behind on reading and math. Former district leaders tried to implement new programs, and the state gave them a B rating in 2022. The Texas Education Agency took over HISD anyway. Superintendent Mike Miles' new education system model will emphasize instruction time in the classroom and use team centers like these for the kids who are excelling and the kids who need a timeout. He understands families are anxious about change. He believes it was necessary. What message do you think is sent to kids, though? who see classmates in other parts of the city, who still have functioning staffed libraries. So I I think kids like to learn. I think kids focus on their schools. And so um, I think think the kids are going to be fine. I think, you know, they're very flexible, adaptable. You've seen them already on the first day. I've spoken to some of the kids in your district. Mm -hmm. One third grader told me that it made her feel angry. Mm -hmm. 
one fifth grader told me that it made her feel like she's a bad kid who doesn't deserve a library. So, you know, when they come to school, what I've heard and what my staff has heard is nothing but, oh, this is okay. So I think people need to get here. I think the kids will adapt and they will love school like you see kids learning here. Do you believe librarians are important? So every every single position has value and it has you know, a role to play in different places. We can't be all things, all people, and we can't have everything we want. So there's a prioritization that has to happen. Science of reading versus this position. So does that mean you're robbing Peter to pay Paul? And no, I, I mean, I wouldn't phrase it that way. Um, what I would say is we're putting in a bold, different model that works but parents like Lauren say their wishes are being ignored by the school system. Do parents here feel heard? I'm having to literally fight and yell from the rooftops that my children deserve a library. Even prisons have libraries. Cheryl Hensley worked for HISD for 39 years. She was Lauren's second grade teacher before she became a librarian. She was laid off as part of the takeover. If we just focus on the classroom, that's just part of the kid. That's just part of your community. I'm building a lifelong learner. I'm building beyond the teacher. I'm giving them a choice. They're going to the classroom and they're told they have to pass this test. They have to read this passage. They have to do these strategies. When they come to me, they're given a book that they choose. They get a a book that they want to read. Was it hard to leave your school? Extremely hard. I still go by. I don't want to be done. I know these kids were important to me. And I felt like I loved every single one of them. Lauren says the library that was a lifeline for her as a kid is worth fighting for. What are my rights as a parent? Are my children not entitled to a quality education in their neighborhood? Like, where, where, does, where does that fit into my American dream? you know, the pursuit of happiness and life and liberty. I don't feel very happy right now. I don't feel very liberated. I don't feel very free. I feel very frustrated. I feel very unheard. And I feel like my children, children in this district, are being treated like political football. Lauren's son, James, can already read well, but her daughter, Sydney, struggles with dyslexia. I think sometimes people forget that there are real people that are impacted by this. Seriously, what am I supposed to do for my baby girl who is doing her best? They lived in a house in the woods. (laughs) I don't know why people need to take a library away for no reason. It doesn't make sense because... It's really hard to see a thing that you love to just be poof and not gone. The library was one of Sydney's favorite spaces at school. You're going into third grade. That's an important year for reading. Yes. What are you hoping to still learn? What kind of help do you need? I need like help with words and I need to read a lot. What message do you think it sends to you to go to a school that doesn't have a library? That kids just shouldn't read, or kids like us shouldn't read. 
kids shouldn't read or kids like us shouldn't read. That is some incredible reporting from NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton, who's covered many stories of American schools struggling under unique challenges as politics and education policy collide. We're going to talk to her all about that when we come back. Stay with us. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. City of Houston is run by the Democratic mayor, Sylvester Turner, whom you saw in Antonia's story. In the 2020 presidential election, Harris County, where Houston is located, went blue, as it has in every presidential election since 2008. Joe Biden won the county by more than 13 percentage points. Harris County is one of the most diverse counties in the entire state of Texas. The school district is no different. More than 80 percent of the 200,000 students enrolled in Houston's independent school district are black and Latino. And the Republican-led state of Texas is focused on improving the district's test scores by taking away their school libraries. The state-appointed superintendent has instituted a new plan for this school year that will transform the libraries and many of the schools into centers of discipline, literally replacing books with isolation. Mayor Turner says the library plan is creating a prison-like atmosphere in spaces typically associated with learning. NBC's correspondent Antonia Hilton spent a few days in Houston talking to parents and students about these new changes and what it means for their communities. Antonia, literally nobody tells these important stories of our time better than you do. But that last thing you had in your story, that, that, that boy saying that kids shouldn't read or kids like us shouldn't read, I don't know if he recognized that in American history, particularly in the South, particularly in Texas, that was a thing that that his ancestors may have faced. A deliberate effort to make sure that certain people did not read. They could not attain uh, self-sufficiency. They could not in those days get away from their their owners and captors. But in this day, it also keeps people in their place. That was a remarkably resonant piece uh, of a very remarkably resonant story. Thank you, Allie. You know, that boy is actually a ferocious reader, so he may well know all the history you spelled out right there. And that's really the weight that a lot of these families of color here in Houston are feeling right now. You know, nobody thinks that the school didn't need any kind of reform or change. In fact, in all of the years in which the state was criticizing Houston ISD, the parents were too. They wanted more for their kids. They wanted more resources. They were asking the state for more money. They wanted new programs. They wanted interventionists to help their kids catch up with reading and math. So nobody was saying, you know, nothing here needs to change and the status quo was fine. So they agree with the superintendent on that. But I think what for these families who are seeing some of their kids struggle to read and uh, struggle to find points in the day at school, right, where they can also just relax, be themselves, have fun, curl up with a book. 
the library meant something to them. It, it, it meant a lot for those kids to go into that space, to make a decision, a choice about what they wanted to explore that day and really have agency in that room. And so that's the question that parents tell me they're asking this administration, you know, where is our agency? You know, now that we've lost our elected representatives, where do we get a seat at the table? And if we're going to make all these changes, okay, some changes are good, but but what say do we have? And will you partner with us before you move ahead with them? That's that's sort of what's at stake here. And they see this history and and what could happen to kids who look like them, Ali. So you spoke to the new non-elected uh, appointed superintendent. And I thought something he said was very interesting. He, when, when you asked him specifically about libraries, it was stark. I mean, I can't imagine such a thing. I've, I've known of the story for several weeks, but I've not seen the imagery that there are literally libraries without books uh, in them. He said, we can't be all things to all people. We can't have everything we want. I think it's reasonable to say that we can't have everything we want. We can't be all things to all people. But there are virtually no students in this country who will tell you that the library whether at school or otherwise, was not central to the being of a child who enjoyed education. So, yeah, can't be all things to all people. But why the libraries? Of all the things to cut, why the libraries? Well, he sees himself as a reformer. He has a large network of charter schools at which he's implemented this new education system and says that he's seen a track record of success. And here's the logic behind it that if they're able to take resources, focus more time on instruction in the classroom and use some of the way in which they've reorganized and uh, removed some positions to increase some teachers' pay, that then those teachers will succeed, they will go above and beyond, they'll do more for kids in the classroom, and kids will get more of that reading instruction and all other kinds of instruction to really catch up with the rest of the state. And so it's not that he doesn't think kids should still read, but he thinks that the library might not necessarily have to be the space for that, that there are other points in the day where kids are going to be able to, of course, read through their ELA classes, through English, uh, read as part of assignments. What librarians have said to me is that they did a whole lot more than just check out books or stand there as kids read, that they found kids who, you know, maybe weren't really that into reading and they helped them find subjects that they were inspired by, uh, that they would give kids the next book in a series so that they would keep falling in love with reading and in love with authors, that they also would teach classes, you know, to help kids figure out the difference between fact and fiction. How do you evaluate sources? How do you start to cite sources in your first school papers? And librarians were playing all of these roles. And so their concern is, you know, this is so much bigger than, you know, just how do the shelves look in a big room? It's about that culture, all of the pieces and the joy and love of learning that go with it. We got the chance to go inside of the team center uh, and you can see some of it in the story there where there are rows and rows of desks in mm -hmm. what used to be a library. And then along the wall, there are a lot of these shelves where kids are going to be able to either at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day before they go to the bus, grab books sort of on an honors system. And kids may well do that. We didn't get to see any kids actually do that today. But the other piece that librarians are concerned about is that, you know, if the books are just there in the corners and along the walls, kids are going to forget about the library and it just won't be a focal part of school culture anymore. You uh, spoke to the parent of a child in the school system that has disabilities and they're worried about how this transformation of libraries is going to affect their children, especially their children uh, and their ability to learn English. Let's just listen to that together. Yo tengo un niño con autismo. Y el otro que es muy imperativo. Una idea lo que yo batallo con mis bebés. Han dado suficiente información a las familias latinas. 
no nos han dado nada, nada de información. Tell me a bit more about that. You just met a mom there named Selena Manzano. She has uh, children who are heading into one of these schools, uh, one of these NES schools where the library has been transformed. She has a son with autism, one son with ADHD. And her concern that she told me is that her kids' special needs will be interpreted or misinterpreted in the classroom and that they may then be sent to spend some time in one of these team centers for discipline. And her other major concern here is that she says she hasn't received enough information in Spanish. And this is a district in which in some schools, the majority of kids are Latino. The majority of kids have parents uh, who do not speak English at home. Many of them are going home and they can't practice reading with an adult who can help them read their assignments that day or dive into a book written in English. And so getting that instruction in school, that support in school is really all those kids have. And so these parents are, are doing their best right now. I actually got to spend time with one mom named Jessica Campos, who speaks both English and Spanish, and she's been translating. She sends out text messages. She sends out emails to all of the Spanish-speaking parents around her neighborhood uh, to try to give them an update on the questions that she asked administration, the information she received from their teachers, so she can try to give them, you know, that sense of, of feeling like they still have a say in their school. Um, at that elementary pew, the uh, principal no longer speaks Spanish, uh, who has been uh, put in place now after this takeover. And so there's a lot of anxiety there. And I think You know, it's going to take a couple weeks before we have a sense of how this new system really works. Uh, you know, I, I've spoken to people who are working through it, who are excited, who say that the pay increases are going to help, that the teachers are going to be uh, more excited, more engaged now. But right now, the parents, they're describing chaos. And that's for parents, both who speak English uh, as a first language and for parents who are still learning, Ali. We're going to follow it closely with you, Antonia. Thanks for your fantastic reporting on this. Antonia Hilton for us in Houston. The attacks on books and education in Texas and across the country is exactly what I've been exploring for the last year and a half. But now I've got a brand new podcast for it, the Velshi Band Book Club. The first two episodes are out right now. You can scan the QR code on your screen to listen wherever you get your podcasts. And still ahead, an outpouring of bipartisan support for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after an incident at a press conference in his home state of Kentucky today. We'll have more details on that when we come back. All right, before the Senate reconvenes next week, senators are attending a few final events in their home states. Today, reporters caught up with the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, after he spoke at a Chamber of Commerce event in Covington, Kentucky. This is what happened when one of those reporters asked Senator McConnell about running for re-election. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026? What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. That's oh. right. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yeah. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Penny. Yep. Somebody else have a question? Please speak up. 
Uh, Senator McConnell, by the way, I misspoke. He's the minority leader, as you know. He went on to answer a few more questions with the help of his aide. In late July, Senator McConnell went silent for several seconds during a news conference in the Capitol before his colleagues escorted him away. At the time, McConnell's office said that he felt lightheaded. NBC News reached out to his office for comment on the senator appearing to freeze up today. A spokesperson said in a statement, quote, Leader McConnell felt momentarily lightheaded and paused during his press conference today. While he feels fine as a prudential measure, the leader will be consulting a physician prior to his next event, end quote. This afternoon, when asked about Senator McConnell, President Joe Biden wished him well. We have disagreements politically, but he's a good friend. And so I'm going to try to get in touch with him uh, later this afternoon. After the episode in Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell began calling his fellow Republican leaders in the Senate. Senator John Thune, spokesman, and Senator McConnell said that Senator McConnell sounded like his, quote, usual self and was in good spirits, end quote. All right. When we come back, the cost, not just in terms of life and limb, of a hurricane's destructive path through the southeast. Much more on that right after the break. It's been a little over 12 hours since Hurricane Adelia made landfall in Florida's Big Bend region as a Category 3 hurricane, downing trees and power lines and flooding streets and homes. The sparsely populated island city of Cedar Key saw eight to nine feet of storm surge, damaging many structures. About 130 miles south of that in Tampa, while structural damage was minimal, which is more typical of a built-up area like that, Tampa Bay saw up to five feet of storm surge. So we're dealing with a couple of problems here. Waters, storm surge, flooding. Just tonight, a seawall has been breached in Charleston, South Carolina, a town that floods literally every time a hurricane glances in its direction. But there's another issue with the water. It's really hot. You've probably seen references in the past few weeks to ocean temperatures off the coast of Florida feeling like you're getting into a hot bath. And that's not some quirky artifact of global warming. It's the harbinger of really damaging, super powerful storms. Joining us now is Monica Medina, former deputy undersecretary at NOAA, as well as a former assistant secretary for oceans, environment and science in the State Department, both under President Biden. She's now the president and the CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society. Monica, thank you for being here. You have for so long been uh, sort of a counselor to me in terms of understanding climate. But you have a specialty here about oceans and ocean water. And that is part of what we see here when a hurricane in the Atlantic gets close to uh, mainland. The temperature of the water, influenced by the climate, influences the power of that hurricane. It sure does, Allie. Thank you so much for having me on tonight and for talking about this really important topic. It supercharges the storm. And I just want to say hats off to this the folks who, who flew through the storm to feel its impacts and actually the forecast was incredibly accurate this time as to where it would make landfall. So that gave people plenty of time to prepare. But what they had to prepare for was a supercharged storm full of heat and energy and that huge storm surge, which is different than what we've seen decades ago. That supercharged water just acts like a, a vacuum and it sucks up more and more energy into the storm and then it all comes ashore. So let's look at this. Hurricane Idalia went from a category one to a category four, essentially overnight. Warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico helped fuel Hurricane Idalia's rapid intensification hours before it made landfall. As Idalia moved through the Gulf on Tuesday, its winds rose 
by 55 miles per hour in just 24 hours, strengthening from a Category 1 hurricane to a Category 4 by early Wednesday. I want to put up a tweet by a former NOAA scientist, Jeff Masters, whom you may know. And and he was saying that Idalia is one of 10 historical storms since 1950 that have intensified by at least 40 miles per hour in 24 hours before landfall. This is, you know, you and I follow storms very closely. A storm can arrive close to land and the temperature of the water might not be warm enough and the storm can fizzle and save lives. When it hits water and it's that hot and it it, it intensifies into, again, could have been a category one or two a couple of days ago, ended up a category four. It, it intensifies so quickly and it is such a huge, powerful thing to contend with. And most of the building codes really weren't made for storms of this intensity. And we certainly had time to prepare for a storm, but not for one of this intensity. If we had, I think, a little more uh you know, climate information, if we if we continue to perfect these models, maybe we can better predict the intensity of the storm a few days out. We're getting better and better at it, but we 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 need to keep going. There is damage there, there were there. We believe I think there were two lives lost in connection to this, uh, but there is a lot of property damage. In, in years past, you'd say hopefully you had insurance for it. Uh, wind insurance is really hard to get. Flood insurance is really hard to get. And it's getting harder to get, particularly in flood prone areas like Florida. I had a, a producer on this show tell me here in, in New York State, uh, they couldn't renew their flood insurance. This is becoming a serious thing. Insurance companies are sitting here thinking, I, I don't want to get involved in this. It's a real problem. And, you know, some people may think climate change is a hoax, but it's not. And insurance companies know it. And that's why it's harder and harder to get insured in the state of Florida. In fact, the state of Florida itself now has to write insurance policies because big companies won't come in and do it any longer. Thousands of of Floridians are going are turning to the state to insure them. And the system is already at at a very critical point where it's hard for it to take on much more damage and have to pay out more claims. They can't keep up. The same thing has happened in California. And I'll tell you, you know, in in a decade ago in New York City, the the very institution that I run lost its aquarium. We lost the the aquarium uh, in uh, Coney Island to Superstorm Sandy that wasn't even a hurricane. It's taken us more than a decade and millions and millions of dollars to repair. So we know that climate change is a real a force that we have to contend with now. And we are, I think, fooling ourselves if we think the hits won't keep on coming. The ocean is absorbing 90% of those extra greenhouse gases. That heat is just trapped in the ocean and it's going to continue to charge things up. And of course, on top of that, we've had horrific heat waves this summer and fires like the ones in Maui. So I think insurers are going to be uh, holding um, are going to be increasing prices everywhere all over the country because climate change is here. It's hitting everyone in the U.S. one way or another. It's been it's been quite a summer and hurricane season hasn't even ended yeah. yet. We have a big month ahead of us, Allie, and in September. We have to hope that things don't get worse. And you're right. Uh, in California, if you, you want insurance for your fire, you're going to you're having problems getting that, too. There are some home insurers won't insure you for anything in California. Now, Monica, thanks very much. Monica Medina is the president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society. All right. One quick reminder before we go tonight, as we continue to fo- follow all of the developments in Donald Trump's multiple trials, all four indictments will be available complete and unabridged in a brand new 
new book edited and introduced by me. The Trump Indictments comes out September 25th. You can pre-order it now. And while you wait for the book, you can hear me read all of the indictments on our Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast by scanning the QR code on your screen and a lot more content in that podcast as well. That's it for our show tonight. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.